Super Talk Mississippi media production. Have you been seriously injured? Mama Justice is here for you. Our medical team partners with top-notch doctors, surgeons, therapists, and urologists, ensuring a comprehensive recovery journey. If you've been injured, call Mama Justice today. We're here for you. Howdy, howdy. It's Rhino here, and I wanted to say thank you for listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert here on Super Talk Mississippi. Get ready, get ready to go beyond the headlines and join a meaningful conversation with people from around the state. You're listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert here on Super Talk Mississippi. everyone and welcome to midday super talk mississippi i'm your host gerard gibbard and we are coming at you live from the beautiful mississippi trademark today we're here for the mississippi construction education foundation skills competition we'll be guiding you through the middle of your day with facts fodder and fine music on this hump day and quite a, a snazzy spring day we have out there rhino i noticed uh en route from uh, my home in Ridgeland down here to the trademark, uh, not too far from, of course, downtown Jackson in the Mississippi State Capitol. The trees are awfully green and quite beautiful they are. I'm sort of glad to see them pop out. I was wondering whether they ever would after the brutally cold, frigid weather we experienced, uh, particularly around uh, Christmas. You remember that? It was chilly. Out oh yeah, there. but but the trees are pushing out. They look good. I noticed some of the shrubbery around my yard, however, did not survive the the frigid temperatures. Of course, some of these are varieties that are a little suspect for our zone. You know how you see the little uh, cards information attached to. Uh, various plants at the nursery and they tell you what zones they're really appropriate for and some that are kind of borderline where we are here just north of the coast 150 miles or so well they met their match (laughs) i've got some pittosporums you familiar with those they're a little bit on the tropical side and they thrive on the coastal area but it doesn't look like they're going to pop out this year but the trees look good glad to see that i'm uh and it's just warm outside and uh, a beautiful spring-like day, even though we hadn't really hit spring yet. But daylight saving time goes into effect this coming weekend, right? That's when we spring push forward. forward. Spring forward. That is coming up. I'm just excited the pro- about the possibility of maybe a rain shower or a light thunderstorm this afternoon to wash off some of the pollen. Yeah, I agree, uh, and, and that's certainly better than the more severe weather that we have uh, witnessed. It seems like every time a front moves through the area, it is always accompanied by relatively severe weather, and I always worry about, of course, tornadoes, hail, damaging winds, thunderstorms, etc. But this looks to be a little bit more of a docile event that's just going to push, hopefully, some rain through, as you said, to kind of clear off the 
uh, the pollen. Yeah, North uh, Mississippi's already getting their their dosage of wash. Okay. Well, but nothing severe, right, is, is predicted. Uh, I do not nothing believe. as of yet. I mean, there are some pockets of red on the radar you might want to keep your eyes on, but I haven't seen any uh, warnings as of yet. Okay. Well, we'll stay tuned for that. We'll be on the watch. On the program today, coming up in the next segment, Brent Bean, the president of the Mississippi Construction Education Foundation, Shanta Villanueva, Director of Student Organizations at the Mississippi Department of Education, will wrap up Hour 1 of the program. And then Ryan Miller, Executive Director of Accelerate Mississippi, joins Middays in the next hour at 11.20. Stephanie Lee, Executive Director of the Mississippi State Board of Contractors, will talk about how important is the Mississippi Construction Education Foundation to preparing youngsters for careers in education so so desperately uh, pardon me in construction so desperately needed and going through the trademark here this morning uh rhino they're telling you they're busy as bees building all kind of stuff in there it's pretty cool to watch all that uh it's a bit loud too as you can imagine with hammer on nails and saws uh busy and and welding apparatus as well <laughs> involved uh, it's pretty cool pretty cool landscape wendy clemens associate superintendent of secondary education for the mississippi department of education joins middays at 1205 representative jill ford on the program happens to be my representative will join us at 1237 dr kimberly jones director of post-secondary student organizations with the mississippi community college board We'll wrap up the day for us uh, down at the Trademark at 12.50. So lots of news coming from both uh, the state capitol. It's a busy time of year with the legislature in session, of course, and also um, of the bills that are being considered uh, across the chambers, those which have passed the, the House and Senate now being taken up in uh, the opposite chamber so a lot of activity there i think the big news coming out of the state capitol is that uh, the house of representatives did vote in fact to uh past postpartum uh expansion of medicaid coverage uh just to give you a catch up there uh medicaid does cover eligible pregnant mothers uh, during the time of gestation if their income meets the eligibility requirements and then it extends that coverage for another uh, two months postpartum that's base medicaid that's the system that's been in place for quite some time this legislation would extend it for and the coverage for an additional 10 months tagging that on to the end of the two months of coverage postpartum uh that's what this does now just to clarify the continuous enrollment provision of the uh family's first coronavirus relief act passed into law by the federal government signed by donald trump in march of 2020 required states to keep all medicaid recipients enrolled enrolled throughout the public health emergency which has now been extended a number of times uh and in fact 
uh, 11, I think to be exact, 11 times the PHE has been extended by executive order by the president. So we're three years, three years now uh, after that bill was enacted. States have been required to keep everyone enrolled on Medicaid or, or who becomes enrolled on Medicaid on Medicaid until the PHE ends. That is scheduled to uh, terminate the public health emergency at the end of this month. What that means is that states at that point would be compelled to remove anyone from their Medicaid roles who is no longer eligible. For the last three years, states have not been allowed to do that. That being the deal the federal government cut with the 50 states to receive additional monies from the federal government, an enhanced enhanced federal match. Uh, because, of course, Medicaid is a jointly funded program between the states and the federal government. The federal government stepped up that percentage. Each state has a different percentage federal match. Minimum of 50% of each state's Medicaid program is covered by the Fed. It is based on per capita income. That is what the federal percentage, how the federal percentage is determined. It's called the FMAP. Mississippi, because we have the 50th per capita income we have the lowest per capita income of all the 50 states we consequently receive the highest federal match in other words we get more assistance from the federal government to operate medicaid in mississippi than all the other states that has been historically in the 73 74 percent range but during the public health emergency that was increased by 6.2 percent putting it roughly at 80 percent so the federal government pays roughly 80 percent of mississippi's medicaid program uh that is all scheduled to end uh what happens is as of april 1 the division of medicaid will begin disenrolling all of those who are presently on the Mississippi Medicaid rolls that are no longer eligible based on uh, the various eligibility criteria. Primarily, their uh, either their uh, income uh, doesn't uh, meet the eligibility test or they're in a coverage group such as postpartum coverage where they're only eligible for two months, and they've been on it ever since then. So if you were a pregnant mom, you had a baby, let's say, uh, and you were on Medicaid, let's say, back in 2020, you've been on Medicaid since then, even though you may not qualify for it. That in accordance with federal law. Uh, but now that's all coming to an end, except the state of Mississippi, it looks like, is poised to extend that coverage group's coverage from two months postpartum to a full 12 months. Mississippi, um uh, until that bill is passed, is the only of the 50 states. It is the only of the 50 states that does not have uh, coverage in its Medicaid program uh, for at least a year postpartum for that coverage group. It's a little wonky, a little complicated, but that's big, uh, big news coming out of the state legislature overnight. Coming right back with Brent Bean, of the president of the Mississippi Construction Education Foundation. We've relocated the Element Well Studios to the Mississippi Trademark. Stay with us. Gerard Gibbert. 
He keeps his classified documents right where they belong. Inside a journey record jacket from the 1980s, Gerard Gibbert, Super Talk Mississippi. Welcome back, everyone. Midday Super Talk Mississippi live from the Mississippi Trademark today. We're here for the Mississippi Construction Education Foundation Skills Competition. Joining us now, Brent Bean, the president of the Mississippi Construction Education Foundation. Brent, I walked through the hall there. A lot of folks are busy building a bunch of stuff in there. <laughs> they are going at it. They started arriving about 7 o'clock this morning. I, don't, I didn't know young people woke up that early, but they were ready to go with their tools and just itching. They were knocking on the doors for us to unlock so they could get in there and start on their competition. So. Well, I got to tell you, it it does the heart and mind and soul good to see young people uh, so busy at work uh, and so focused on the task at hand and doing productive work like that. I, I love it. Yeah, it's it's so impressive. We We hear all the time, you know, a lot of negative talk about this generation and everything, and that's just not true for all of them. There's there's still a lot of young people that want to work, know how to work, right. and enjoy working. And, and that's on display here today. We've got 188 high school and community college students that are out there putting on a show. And um, it's really impressive what they're doing. I mean, they come in here and materials are sitting out for them. They get these prints and these, these blueprints and plants and say, hey, you got 12 hours. Put it together. <laughs> all right, so tell us about the competition. How does that work exactly? So all of these people here today, they competed in four regionals over the last couple of months. The community colleges hosted these regionals across the state, and the top three of each uh, project qualified to come to state, where first place here today will be eligible to go to the national competition in, our, in Atlanta, this upcoming summer. Okay. And we've got uh, masonry, HVAC, sheet metal, industrial motor control, uh, electrical residential wiring, plumbing, team build, welding team, as well as single-man carpentry projects going on. And, and what uh, what's the age range of the competitors? So these are sophomores to seniors in high school. And then we do have some community college competitors out there as well. So, you know, they're looking around 19 or 20 years old. But over 150 of them are anywhere from a sophomore to a senior. Um, so what we see out there going on, these young people that are working together and building these projects at such an efficient manner and working hard, some of these are 15- and 16-year-old Incredible. people. And, and that's what we try to get the, the public to be aware of and try to fight that that stigma of you know this generation doesn't don't doesn't want to work yeah, yeah there's there's still some there's still some good ones out there that that do want to get in a good day's work and we're extremely excited to be able to to partner up with the department of education and the community college board to to host this show and, and put it on for them yeah and uh what what uh, what entices, what encourages and, and motivates these, these kids, these competitors to get involved in this? So a lot of it is we work really hard 
Um, we have uh, staff. We've got three area directors that go out into these schools and speak on behalf of industry as well as getting industry into these schools and talking to these young people about the opportunities that are available for them if they want to get into the construction and manufacturing industry. And here in the state of Mississippi, you don't have to leave the state. Right. Uh, whether it's on the coast working on some of the shipbuilding yards or, you know, in the Delta, on the river, here in Jackson, there's there's subcontractors and general contractors all over the place dying to hire people, and they'll pay people really good to come work for them. Yeah. And that's something that... We've been pushing to these young people is in this industry, you can start off as a helper, but if you've got the mentality and the drive to to learn and to work hard, look, you can work your way up to where you've got your own company. And we've got a lot of project managers and judges out here from industry across the state that are putting this show on, and that's what they're talking to these young people about, like, hey, I competed in this 15 years ago, and now they're superintendents or project managers or presidents of some of these large commercial contractors in the state of Mississippi, and that's just proof for these people, hey, here there is a path for you to yeah. be extremely successful. And Yeah, it may be hard work starting off, um, but you can work your way up to where you're sitting in the truck and you're watching somebody else, or you're sitting in the office and you're sending the trucks out or bidding on the jobs, and... Not many industries have that clear pathway available for them where you can work all the way up to the top to where you're the owner. And so I saw on the signage that there are a number of, of private sector uh, contractors that are heavily involved in, in uh, the skills competition and just the education uh, foundation itself. Uh, to what extent are, are they on the floor there mentoring and, and guiding uh, the youngsters in their construction activity? Yeah, it's it's really impressive to watch contractors across the state of Mississippi dedicate two days of their time. Because it's busy, and on a beautiful day like today, you know, there's a lot of work going on. But we've got project managers and superintendents that... They believe in this so much, and they're so dedicated to growing the industry and working with the future of the industry that not only are they here, but they've got some of their there's equipment not being operated right now on job sites because we've got people down here participating as judges or project managers, working with these young people, encouraging them to to stick with it. If you think this is something you want to do, sure, man, stick with it, you know, and just grooming them and hope, hoping to grow them into, you know, the future industry of our, of our state. Sure. Uh, and these companies, they're, they're, they're begging for, for talent, are they not? They are begging for it, and that's another great piece of what's happening today is, you know, we tell these young people ahead of time before they come down, hey, bring resumes with you because... You know, we're blessed and fortunate to have, you know, these project managers and judges. These are active people in the industry. Mm-hmm. Um, some of them are owners of companies that are down here. So that's who you're going to be working with for the next two days is someone that if you want to get into this field, hey, the people that's your judge or your project manager, they can offer you a job. Sure. 
And they're keeping an eye on them too, aren't they? They're they, observing. They are. Oh, they're absolutely. They're watching for future oh, workers. <laughs> they they absolutely are. I've had a handful that's come up to me over the last day and a half and said, "Hey, this one right here, he he knows what he's doing. <laughs> you know, we need to we need to talk to him. Like, you're going to have the opportunity to do that." Um, at what's going on on the far west bay is we've got a job fair going on in conjunction with this competition we've got um, in addition to these project managers and judges that are in the projects with them we've got contractors set up we've got 25 contractors set up with booths and tables so that they can meet with these young people as well when they have their breaks or when they conclude this afternoon right. able to go through and have an opportunity we've got electrical contractors we've got mechanical guys we've got plumbing general contractors roofers they're all down there um itching to to get a chance to talk to these young people that are putting on a show today brent there there's i think a bit of a misconception about the the financial opportunities uh in these trades in these construction jobs yeah that's something that we we try to push out and market to people that you know as pay is increased in other areas other industries the construction industry has had to maintain that as well and a lot of times what we try to explain to people is hey they may start you off at sixteen dollars an hour or eighteen dollars an hour but as you're working for them you're going to start getting per diem if you're staying in a hotel somewhere Um, you're going to get a company truck soon after you know a couple of years of being in there especially if you get put into an apprenticeship program you know the majority of our apprentices by the time they're in their third year they're driving company trucks yeah so they're not they're not paying for the gas to get to and from work you know they're getting pay raises every year they're getting bonuses health insurance 401k retirement you know all of those things that you hear about in other areas that's here in the construction industry as well. Yeah, with with uh, pr- pretty stable employment as well. Absolutely, and that's that's what's so neat when you're out here talking to you know these young people are able to interact and engage with these judges and these project managers. You know, well, hey, I see you you work for you work for Yates, or you're working for Key Constructors. How long have you been to them? Well, I got with them 15 years ago. You know, they weren't bouncing all around because these these places invest in their people and that makes you want to stay with them no doubt about it uh, and these, these are good companies that understand they've got to compete in the marketplace for labor and when you're doing that you, you're stepping up your game you're making sure you, you're providing an opportunity and an environment that folks want to work in absolutely Brent Bean, president of Mississippi Construction Education Foundation, has been our guest. Brent, always good to see you. Thanks for coming on. Yes, sir. Thank you for coming down. We're stepping aside for a break right here on Middays. We're at the Mississippi Trademark, where the Element Wealth Studios have been relocated for the Mississippi Construction Education Foundation Skills Competition. We're coming right back. I'll drink my beer in a tavern, sing a little bit of these working man blues. It's song for the working man. Started today. The stories that matter most to Mississippians. Gerard Gibbert. Middays with Gerard. Super Talk Mississippi.
Welcome back, everyone. It's midday, Super Talk Mississippi, and we are live today at the Mississippi Trademark. That's where we have temporarily relocated the Element Well Studios. We're here for the Mississippi Construction Education Foundation Skills Competition. So some of that noise you might hear in the background is because some of these young competitors are sawing and hammering and welding and uh, building all sorts of stuff. It's pretty cool to watch them at work, uh, just so highly focused on the task at hand is really something so we were just talking earlier in the last segment about uh, first the weather we had some reports here rhino on the ceasefire text line vicky and clarksdale says it's storming here uh from let's see tunica 46 and raining really wow oh yeah ranges ranges started in greenwood and let's see. I think that's. I think that's all I see being reported on the ceasefire text line concerning the weather. So that front definitely moving through North Mississippi, and I guess headed in our direction here in Central Mississippi, and going to sweep through the state. Doesn't seem to be a severe weather event, and but it is going to cool things off a bit, right, Rhino? Yeah, that's what the weatherman's saying. He's saying it's going to get down into the fifties uh, for some, and maybe even the forties, and then. The temps are going to continue to climb downward as the uh, week moves on, but I don't think it's going to stay cool for everyone. But, yeah, cooler temperatures are on the horizon. Okay. Well, that's something. So uh, coming through, but it is it is still March, and we haven't hit spring yet. we got uh, just a little over a week until that officially begins. But uh, I feel like maybe this is the last round of the chilly weather, as we can expect from that point forward to be relatively warm. I'm certainly hoping so. Oh, I'm sure we'll have a cold spell in April. I mean, it it always happens, at least a weekend. Right before Easter, huh? Oh, yeah. Yeah. So just looking at the, uh, the vote yesterday on the postpartum Medicaid expansion legislation, I see that there were, in the House, 89 yeas, 29 nays. And just looking at the list there, one of those is uh, Representative Jill Ford, who will be on the program later on. So looking forward to having a discussion with her and finding out what her her rationale was for voting nay. Um, Not being critical about that vote, I'm just uh, curious to know what what led her to vote uh, nay and, and would be curious to hear from the others and and also those who voted yay i'd I'd like to hear what their reasoning was it's this is something that just occurred kind of unexpected and i think it was all i think triggered by an announcement from the governor that um uh just over a week ago that he would in fact support uh postpartum expansion and and i think when he signaled his support that uh, was the impetus for the bill passing the senate and then uh, being um, passed in the house and now headed it, it appears to the governor i did note that there are some staunch opponents of uh, this expansion of postpartum uh, medicaid which is a, a, a base coverage group what I mean by that is that there are five coverage groups that uh, Medicaid provides benefits to. One of those is pregnant, pregnant, expecting moms that um, 
meet the, the income eligibility test. I think it's 150% of the federal poverty level is the number that sticks in mind. It might be 200%. I'll look that up to make sure. But bottom line is it, it's um, a relatively low level of income to qualify for uh, coverage under Medicaid during pregnancy and then for the two months postpartum. Uh, and I've seen those that oppose this this move to expand postpartum coverage is suggest that um, that it's a failed health care system that um, and talking about Medicaid in general. And in fact, I think there's been some reports that indicate that you're 13 percent more likely to die on Medicaid than having no coverage whatsoever. So what that would seem to to do is two things. The way I read that is that it's an indictment of the health care system. It means that doctors and nurses and health care facilities are killing people rather than taking care of them. I mean, maybe I'm misreading that, but that's kind of what it sounds like. Um, Because if you don't have insurance, then perhaps you're not receiving any medical care uh, is kind of what that's saying. Or... This could also be the, the alternative interpretation of that. Well, you don't have insurance, and you don't have a means to pay, so the hospital's just giving you those services. Doctors and providers and healthcare professionals are just absorbing the cost of your care. So either you're getting care for nothing because you can't pay for it, and so your, your neighbors are picking up the tab through their private uh, coverage premiums, uh, or you're not getting any medical treatment whatsoever so i i guess that would mean that if you're pregnant um and you don't have coverage and you don't have medicaid um that you're more likely to have a a a non-problematic pregnancy and a a delivery that's non-problematic i just wonder are they delivering these babies outside of a hospital outside of a, a healthcare setting just delivering the baby at home without any sort of care that they're more likely to have a better outcome than they would in a hospital. I, it's a serious question. I'm not, tr- I'm not trying to ridicule the assertion. I'm trying to understand what how, how those numbers come about. How can you be 13% more likely to die without any form of medical treatment and care than you are if you get some sort of medical treatment and care? That tells me that you're either getting the care and you're not paying for it, and the provider's not being reimbursed even at Medicaid rates, uh, or you're 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 getting the care under Medicaid, and the care is so substandard that you're more likely to die from receiving that care from a healthcare provider, from a healthcare professional. I, I'm not really sure, honestly. I, I, am I missing any other possible options in that? analysis uh, rhino the, the way you see it I, i'm always shocked by that 13 percent more likely to die if you have insurance to to pay for your health care than if you don't have insurance to not pay for your health care yeah it feels like a statistic that was fabricated for the sole purpose of fitting a narrative maybe not fabricated maybe massaged is the right word yeah i, I i'm not sure I, honestly, um, I just, I've always, now, it is true that every health care provider in hospital um, does not accept Medicaid, do, does not treat Medicaid patients. There's no, there's no requirement, there's no legal requirement, there's no law that compels any provider 
to accept Medicaid. In fact, you'll you'll often see um, promotions for health care facilities, for primary care, for even specialty practices that say we accept Medicare or Medicaid. You'll see signage sometimes. I know you've seen this, Rhino. We don't accept Medicare or Medicaid. Almost all of them do Medicare, honestly. Medicaid is, is the more likely scenario where you'll see uh, some sort of post that says we don't take Medicaid. And, well, and I get that because the reimbursement is so ridiculously low that when they provide those services and they're reimbursed by Medicaid, they're upside down. Um, so they're better off financially just not providing those services. So what ends up happening is those people still get sick. They still get health care coverage, generally speaking. They just go to the hospital is, is where they're pretty much going to be at least guaranteed to um, be stabilized in an emergency room, which just clogs up the emergency room, often with cases that are not urgent, are not emergent, and that consumes resources that need to be available for people that truly do have an emergency situation. So it's, it's just a very complicated matter, and there may be reasons certainly to oppose uh, Medicaid postpartum extension, but the fact that you're more likely to die if you have Medicaid, if you have insurance, then you're and if you don't, well, heck, on that standard, we ought to just completely ditch the Medicaid system in the state of Mississippi. If you're more likely to die under Medicaid, we have 800,000 people in Mississippi on Medicaid. We just should, ought to, should exit the program. If it's, if it's truly that bad, then we ought to get out of it altogether. Just tell the federal government, don't send us your $6 billion, and we'll save a billion dollars of state taxpayer money that is our part of the uh, funding of the Medicaid program. We just ought to push back to the federal government and say, we don't want your money. We're dumping everybody. No longer do they have insurance coverage uh, under Medicaid. That would save a bunch of money, and looks to me like, based on that statistic, you'd be more likely to live and less likely to die. You would not experience the bad outcomes that are being suggested uh, or are uh, delivered under, under Medicaid. So we just ought to get out of it altogether. And, Thomas, I'm still shocked. You have not insisted, demanded that to, to your reps and senators we should get out of Medicaid altogether. Tell the federal government, don't send us that money, and we should cut our taxes commensurately to offset the reduction of cost the state bears to be in the Medicaid program. Uh, Thomas, I wouldn't be taking credit. He says his legislator voted against it. It wasn't because of your email, I can assure you. Um, let's see. We are taking a break right here on Middays. We're in the Element Well Studios. We're coming right back. Stay with us. Middays with Gerard. Good for America. Good for fans of justice and truth. Good for us. Super Talk Mississippi. This is what we stand for. back, everyone. Middays down at the Mississippi Trademark today for the Mississippi Construction Education Foundation Skills Competition. Joining us now in the Element Well Studios is Shante Villanueva, Director of Student Organizations with the Mississippi Department of Education. So, Shante, good to see you again. Looks like uh, all the students are busy at it in there this morning. They are. 
This competition is a two-part competition. So we have all the skills competitions down here. But at the Jackson Convention Center, we're hosting the leadership development competitions. Students are competing in anything from prepared speech to extemporaneous speech, chapter display, promotional bulletin board, EMT, firefighting, um, and uh, traffic stop. Wow. Uh, so who, um, I guess, gives rise, who, who names and figures out what these organizations are going to be? What's the genesis for them? Uh, the national organization. Oh, okay. Uh, yes, it's based in Leesburg, Virginia, and okay. so they have a national technical committee. And so they sit down each year, go through the events, um, what's needed in the workforce, and that's how they come up with the events. Okay. That's, that's really pretty cool. Um, and so how does the Department of Education, how, do, how does it intersect with the Education Foundation, of course, the private sector, construction companies that are heavily involved in this effort as well? So uh, we just get out and um, let them know that we have kids that are accelerating Mississippi from the workforce, from the classroom to the workforce. So most business and industries do not really know that we offer um, skilled events in these uh, in, in, in schools. And so um, that's our job to get out, let them know what it's about. And they see students that are welding ready to go from the classroom to the workforce. Um, that's an advantage for them. Yeah. Awesome. And, it, and it's important, is it not, uh, Shantae, that these students are, are certainly a exposed to a lot more than just uh, the instruction they receive, uh, the traditional instruction they receive in the classroom. Yes. The number one thing that employers would say is students don't know how to talk to them for a job interview. Mm-hmm. So that's where the leadership por- portion comes in in this competition. Sure. Uh, because if you go out to, I'll give an example, English Shipyard. One of their things is time management. Another another thing is they don't know how to interview for a job. Yeah. So right now we have automotive service technology at the Jackson Convention Center. We have Toyota uh, representatives from the southeastern part of the state. They're over there doing an actual job interview. So they're learning the skills of, of uh, conducting an, an interview, being interviewed. Yes, they Very are. Very important. Mm-hmm. Because that, as you know, is, is often the difference in landing a job or not, is how well you perform during the interview. Yes. Uh, what sort of skills do you teach them? Is it communication skills, all the various soft skills, and the, just the body English, dress, how, how to look someone in the eye and greet them, re, be respectful during an interview? So each one of our technical standards have a dress code. So they have to be in that official dress code because that's where you're going to go to work, yeah. in the dress code. Yeah. Uh, also, our soft skills, decision-making, teaching them how to be a team, ethics, uh, you know, building their self-esteem, things that people don't think that students need that will bring them out of their shell and force, you know, and push them into the workforce to be a force. Yeah. Uh, have, have you received some feedback from employers, prospective employers, that said, I can definitely tell the difference uh, about the students that have undergone this training and, com- and completed it and learned these skills? Yes. We work a lot with Nissan. So one of the things they'll say is when I first, when the student first came to us, they were uh, withdrawn. But now, over the course of working with us, I can see that they have a bright future. So, yes. Yeah, that's, that's awesome. Uh, so, and, and many of these students that are here today that are participating in this competition, there are employers that are watching them, watching them work, interacting with them, and, and making, making a note that they're prospective future employees. Yes. I 
House Bill 1388 uh, with the Mississippi uh, legislators, it's about accelerating Mississippi. So what we want to do is we want to have employers, business and industry here, to see one of those welding students in their welding um, at the finest out of the classroom. So we want them from the classroom to the workforce. Yeah. That's one of our main uh, goals with Accelerate Mississippi. You'll see that in carpentry. If you go in there and see some of those projects, people are going to question, did a high school student build it? Yes, they did because wow. they're learning the skill in the classroom. And they're from the classroom to the workforce. Wow. And, and it should not be lost that the, the skills and, and uh, the subject matter that you learn in the classroom, that's also important, and that's very applicable to uh, these construction jobs, especially as even the construction industries become uh, more sophisticated, more high-tech. I, I was watching uh, before the show, um, some of the students were working on installation of HVAC, there's an awful lot of technology involved in the HVAC systems these days, and and all, all the other trades as well. It's incredible. So it's you got to be able to use your mind and your brain as well as your your, your physical skills. Yes, we want to get we have business and industry in there, but we would like to get all of Mississippi involved in this uh, great organization. Yeah, it, it's awesome, and it's so good to see all those students in there that are so, seem to be so dedicated uh, to their work and also very proud of their accomplishments as well, as well. But it's a great deal. Appreciate you coming on, Shantae. Thanks a lot. Thank you guys for having me. I appreciate it. we got Super Talk News, Fox News coming up here uh, now because it is the top of the hour. We're coming right back. We've got Ryan Miller, Executive Director of Accelerate Mississippi at 1120. Stay with us. To the show that challenges you to think deeply deeply. and look beyond political posturing. You're listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert here on Super Talk Mississippi. back everyone to midday super talk mississippi live from the mississippi trademark for the mississippi construction education foundation skills competition that's what some of that noise you might be hearing is in the background yesterday arkansas passed a bill uh the arkansas legislature did that would implement universal school choice it cleared the legislature it now heads to governor sanders desk this was uh, a big big effort on the part of uh, newly elected governor sanders it passed on a 26 to 8 vote in the state senate it uh, it passed the house 78 to 21 a republican controlled legislature fairly rapidly approved this legislation less than a month after it was introduced on February the 8th. This is something that I feel Mississippi is lagging behind on. We've been pushing for this for quite some time and can't can't get it done. Mississippi, I believe, should follow suit and, uh, and pass universal school choice. This also just occurred. In Iowa, we talked about that quite a bit on the program. They're 
three or four other states. Um, let's see, Arizona is one. I want to say Utah maybe is another. But certainly this occurring right next to us in Arkansas is a big deal. Uh, the governor, Sarah Huckabee Sanders, is taking credit for it, as she so- should. She refers to it as her education plan, says it passed, quote, over with overwhelming support says it's an historic win for parents, teachers, and students that will set the education model for the nation. I'm ready to sign it into law tomorrow and end the failed status quo. Every kid will soon have access to a quality education and path to a good-paying job and better life right here in Arkansas. It, uh, it's a big deal, a big victory for the governor of the great state of Arkansas. School choice parents, of course, celebrating the news. Yeah, it's Arizona, Utah, West Virginia, and Iowa are the other states which have implemented universal school choice. So this is uh, rapidly becoming another one of those issues, Rhino, where the states are sort of bifurcating the, the pro-school choice Uh, states and the anti-school choice states. This is just another one of those major issues I guess we can add to the list that seems to be expanding every day on just uh, the juxtaposition (laughs) illustrates it between the states and their their philosophy. Uh, Students just have few choices. Of course, there were a lot who um, opposed it, mainly mainly those that are feel like that this is um, anti-public schools, and it's not. It's not anti-public schools whatsoever. That's not what school choice does. So just to clarify, what this allows is a student and their family to essentially use the funding that comes from uh, the government uh, to attend the school of their choice, and that includes a private school, a parochial school. Now, that doesn't mean the private or parochial school or or charter school, as the case may be. They're not compelled to accept the student. But if the student would like to use the money that their family has allocated to it for public education and, and they want to redirect that to a school of their choice, that's what this legislation allows them to do. Again, it doesn't require private parochial charter schools, non-public schools to accept the student, but if they choose to do so, the student would be able to redirect the funding that applies specifically to them. Interesting. Uh, on the ceasefire text line, uh, let's see, uh, Gerard and Rhino, can you all give a shout out to my brother Ben and the Lawrence County High School guys were pulling for them, says Scott. There you go. You just got it there. Uh, Scott, hopefully they'll do well. Larry from McGee says, My nephew Buckley is up there today in metal trades competition with Lawrence County. They're in first place right now. Congratulations. Kevin in Monticello said, You are really making me feel good about paying $800 a month for private insurance on just me. I'm self-employed. Yeah, it's amazing just how expensive it is, uh, isn't it, Kevin? I appreciate the text. Uh, yeah, the typical individual coverage now, from what I can tell, usually is uh, 800 900 bucks a month these days. Um, the uh, typical coverage of uh, the individual, the employee, for example, in an employer-sponsored plan 
along with their spouse, usually in the twelve to thirteen hundred, fifteen hundred dollar range. Twelve, thirteen hundred would be on the low end, honestly. Fifteen hundred bucks. It's eighteen thousand dollars a year. Just so for perspective, eighteen thousand dollars for health care coverage for an individual and spouse. If you look at the average household income in the state of Mississippi, it sits at around $45,000. You're talking about more than a third, more than a third of their income going to health care coverage, health insurance. That's how upside down all this is. It's incredible. Greg and Newton says, watch the pecan trees when they butt out. Cold weather is gone. Okay, great advice. Appreciate that, Greg. Did, did not know that. I'll have to figure out where there's some pecan trees I can actually go watch. I know when I was a kid, I used to go to a, some pecan groves um, up towards the Delta. And uh, I want to say maybe Holmes County or something like that, Yazoo County, and, and go gather up the pecans. That was always fun. I always liked to eat them. As we're picking them up off the ground, I carried around a little cracker with me so I could do that. Nothing better than fresh pecans. Thomas and Greenwood says, we're subsidizing everything else health-related. It wouldn't be a stretch. That was in response to my question about how can the state address the shortage of and cost of labor and delivery health care professionals. Thomas makes the point. It's a valid point. So we're extending postpartum coverage. Why not address the shortage of labor labor and delivery health care professionals first? And my question was, well, how do we do that from a state perspective? Subsidize doctors? Subsidize the pay to doctors to help hospitals afford labor and delivery doctors and nurses? Because there's a shortage. It's a problem. Um, and he, he notes that, of course, here recently, I believe it was Singing River Hospital down on the Gulf Coast just shut down their labor and delivery unit, and they cited inability to maintain adequate staff for that purpose. And the competition is fierce for these healthcare professionals, and many are deciding to follow the money. Can't blame them for that. They move out of state for higher compensation. Incredible. Uh, Thomas disagrees with the folks in the healthcare industry. Says they there isn't a shortage of doctors. They did it to save costs. Not according to virtually every major hospital administrator that uh, I've certainly spoken to, and that that would cover three of the four largest hospitals in the state. They all indicate there is a shortage of physicians. There is a especially an intense acute shortage of of uh, nurses across the practice areas. They did it to save costs. Well, yeah, they did it to save costs, Thomas, because insurance, and in particular Medicaid, if they have uh, a large number of deliveries that are that are being covered by Medicaid, and we know statistically, it's a fact, 65% of the babies born in Mississippi are born to a uh, pregnant mother who is under Medicaid coverage. So they're they're gestation period and um, also their delivery covered by medicaid 65 percent it's 40 percent 40 percent nationwide with 95 million now uh, about 91 million enrolled in medicaid right now it's expected once we see the march figures just before the public health emergency ends that number is going to 
increased to 95 million. Nearly a third of the nation's population qualifies for and is on uh, Medicaid. Incredible. Really incredible. So um, Scott from, let's see, that asked us to shout out to his brother Ben from Lawrence County who's here in the competition, says, I sent this to them and read it on the radio. Even mentioned they were in first place. Yep, exactly. We got you covered there, man. So it's co- it's a complicated matter. There are no easy answers and easy solutions to all this health care stuff because it's the one thing you, generally speaking, can't live without. You can't do without it. You can do without a lot of other stuff that welfare money gets wasted on. There's no doubt about that. And, and I think that we ought to rein that in and uh, ought, ought to be uh, apply more care and, and more scrutiny to how those dollars are spent. I totally agree with that. And it's, it never gets discussed, though, at the federal or state level. We don't hear much about that. We're taking a break right here. We're at the Mississippi Trademark. We're coming right back with Ryan Miller, Executive Director of Accelerate Mississippi. Please stay with us. The talk that keeps Mississippi talking. We're rolling. Hit it. Go. Play it. Middays with Gerard Gibbert on Super Talk Mississippi. Welcome back, everyone. Middays live from... The Mississippi Trademark, the Element Well Studios, have been repositioned at the Trademark today. And uh, joining us now is Ryan Miller, Executive Director of Accelerate Mississippi. We're here, of course, for the Mississippi Construction Education Foundation Skills Competition. Ryan, good to see you again, sir. It's good to be back. Thanks, Gerard. So it's impressive to watch these youngsters that work in there and in, uh, in the big open area in the Trademark. And, and first, what a great facility this is for these kinds of events. Oh, we're, we're so blessed to have Well, it. and it's centrally located where I think people can come and really kind of get their eyes on what these students can do and uh, it's a beautiful day. If you're not here, you, you should be. Uh, get on down to the trademark so you can see what these students are doing. It's amazing. Yeah, it, it is tr- totally awesome. So tell us how um, your organization, Accelerate Mississippi, how do you work with the Construction uh, Education Foundation, uh, Department of Ed, and so forth in this in this effort? Well, obviously, uh, great great collaborators, and I, I want to give a shout-out to MCEF. I think they've done a tremendous job in promoting this. And uh, I remember from, from this year, to, to from last year to this year, just seeing that there's, a, there's an increase in student activity and participation and so uh, I want to uh, give them kudos. This is an amazing thing uh, to see students at every multiple stages in their educational pathways get to learn about the pathways available to them and and, and certainly uh, get to try their hand at some competition. I think it's, it's, it's fantastic. So we work with MCEF. They're a partner of ours. We recognize the uh, the trades and the industries that those represent are incredible opportunities for, for people to have careers, meaningful careers where they make great, great money and and more importantly, their value to their community in so many different ways. Yeah, it, it is it is uh, totally amazing. And I think what it also illustrates, as you and I have talked about so many times, is there there are a lot of opportunities uh, 
post high school other than uh, just the traditional four-year college route, two-year college route. We desperately need uh, labor oh. in the trades. Um, you you can uh, do quite well for yourself. You can. You can. In fact, I would say, you know, these are these these young people you see coming around here that are in, involved in the competition. These are these are uh, community heroes in many ways because so often we take for granted the services that these industries represent, and uh, you need servant-hearted people who who can give their time and certainly their expertise and training to make sure that our communities are up and running or safe or uh, have the lights on, the heat and air uh, working, the, the the plumbing working, and so uh, you, you know I can't can't say enough about the young people. Uh, that, that we we see here today, but there's no question that the paths that these industry sectors represent are are limitless to, to these young people, and um, I, I think that uh, we we need to do more as a state to, to highlight uh, these paths, get more students exposed to the opportunities and in, in, in the different paths, and some of those lead directly into industry from from high school, some of those lead to community colleges and some workforce training or or short uh, short term training, and some of those actually do go to our four year colleges. One of the wonderful things I enjoy seen in that room you have industry community college tables and even four-year institutions having their tables set up right next to one another mm-hmm. students can see the entire spectrum right there turning in resumes filling out questionnaires getting more information the entire spectrum of opportunity is represented just in that room and students are taking advantage of it today i believe and i think you share my uh, position here that anytime we can get the private sector the public sector and education together, usually we can uh, produce some good output. It's difficult to do, as you know, and then to get them all on the same page. Well, there, there's no question. I think any time that you can improve communication, reduce that, that uh, disconnect between industry and educators, and, quite frankly, making sure that students are apprised of those, those pathways, um, you're, you're going to see some improvement. And it's not rocket science. It is difficult um, from, from year to year trying to make sure that you improve that connectivity, that galvanizing of those relationships. But events like today in Skills USA, MCEF, these are events where that happens, and you can see it uh, play out right in front of your eyes. Yeah, it, it's awesome. So it's my understanding, I don't know how, how familiar you are with all the various projects they've got going on mm-hmm. in the competition, that they're actually, most of what they're building is going to be used, going to be put to productive oh. use. Oh, there's there's no there's no doubt. Um, I mean, you can just walk through in some of the carpentry carp, uh, competitions, some of the, uh, we've seen uh, deer stands, and you've Incredible. seen, even out on the front here, you can see some of the handiwork of students where they've made unbelievable uh, 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 porch furniture. Uh, There's some chicken coops out there. I wish I had chickens. I would actually want to get one of those. Fire pits. But what, what that represents to me is passion that students have. Sure. The training and education they're getting and the expertise that they're able to display here is just second to none. Well, watching them uh, handle those tools um, so skillfully. Mm-hmm. It, you, you don't think you're looking at a person of that age. This right. looks like a, a skilled, oh, experienced sure. person. Yeah, and 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 you know, so whether it's uh, in the electrician side where they're competing to wiring, uh, right, uh, and setting uh, wiring and, and wiring harnesses and boxes they have there, or carpentry, plumbing. I brought my children here last year. My oldest, Shirley Kate, was fascinated with the masonry work, and, yeah. and like she could, she was fixated on this this idea of uh, of, of of laying brick, and thought this is this is an amazing, uh, amazing thing. She would have never seen that had we not said this is a priority to bring our kids so they can see the opportunities in front of them. And I think all parents uh, need to need to understand the opportunity that exists for their children. This is just a wonderful event for them to see it play out in front of them. No doubt about it. And of course, these these private uh, contractors, these construction firms. 
they're all looking for the future talent. Mm-hmm. They need it bad. They do. Um, trying to fill out their ranks and make sure they have sufficient staffing to conduct their business. I was talking back there with a couple of the industries who said that you know their greatest needs obviously are immediate needs for uh, they, they do have some management level that they need that probably will come from a community college program or a four year institution, but they absolutely have some of those uh, trades level uh, you know uh, positions available. Uh, it's the whole spectrum, and that's what I think this kind of event, especially that. Um, uh, career fair that they're having here within this this event today is just a great opportunity for for people to understand the spectrum of the need it's a it's a desperate need that industry has in mississippi and i think mcef and organizations like that are doing everything they can to fill that need yeah no doubt about that so uh the, in the, the department of education you guys work hand in hand with them as well do you oh know? we do we do and i think as an organization accelerate recommend you know recognizes um we're, we're not going to solve every problem uh by ourselves in fact we'll solve very little by ourselves the, the Sure. Real, the real magic here is working with with the Department of Education, working with the Community College Board, working with IHL, working with industry, and bringing them all together in a collaborative format. That's the only way we're really going to solve problems that are generational. Uh, we might be able to, to put a Band-Aid on things, but if we're not getting to the root of the matter and we're not doing it in a collaborative fashion, it won't be a long-lasting solution. Yeah, and, and certainly not uh, discounting the need for traditional classroom instruction. You and I both went through that know that very well right but it, is there not something about ryan when you when you build something physically when you're involved in producing something physically and you sort of stand back and take it in and reflect on your work mm-hmm. the sense of pride you get it, that is so transferable to so many things. Oh, there, it is, and I think I, I, you know. I, I wish more students had opportunities to do that. Uh, you know, growing up, um, you know, my older brother and my dad had many opportunities to work on cars together and to uh, to, to work on projects. I, I was always uh, probably too scatterbrained to actually focus on something like that. But there's no doubt when you see completion in a project that a student has had the opportunity to learn and to apply their skills. There is great pride, and more than that, there energy and passion to say now what's the next what, yeah. what's, what's the next thing can i yeah have? exactly so we you know one of the things that we are excited about and i think this is a good example of it too is you know we have really deployed our career coach program throughout the state of mississippi to try to help uh, add a, another layer of teammates to our school systems to have people that are there to shepherd and guide students that you know they, they now have the opportunity to really see uh, all the opportunities and careers in the different industry sectors and have hands-on learning to increase that pride and increase increase that passion um, and I think uh, you're going to see some great transformative results from from programs like that and then to to be part of a team yeah. to work as a team well and I, you know we always say workforce involves the entire spectrum of, of, of education pre-k believe it or not has application and workforce hmm. problem solving conflict resolution I mean sure you know your little children when they're playing on a playground and they're fighting over a toy there's an opportunity to help them learn even there about how to work as a team how to resolve conflict how to communicate more effectively mm-hmm. that goes all the way through their educational experience even if they're getting a postgraduate uh, you know degree yeah. it, it, there's a there's a workforce application and if we're tying all those opportunities together and we have uh, teammates and resources that are there every step of the way that show them the opportunities um, I think Mississippi is going to see some transformative uh, results from it. 
we got the legislature in session, as you well know. Anything that you're focused on or anything you've been working with them on? Yes. So, uh, in fact, we, uh, we, we certainly uh, I brought up com- uh, career coaches. Um, you know, we, we, we had access and authority over $8 million of ARPA funds last year that we were able to deploy roughly 150 career coaches throughout the state of Mississippi. Right. That allowed for nearly half of the school districts in the state to have a, uh, a career coach that's there to be an added teammate to help help communicate with students about opportunities. We're wanting to double that this year, see $16 million be allocated so that every school district that wants a career coach can have access to a career coach. Gotcha. Gosh, I wish they had that when, when we were going you and through. You huh? both, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. Ryan, good to see you. Appreciate you coming on. Congratulations on all the success, uh, certainly of the event, and your involvement with it at Accelerate Mississippi. Thank you so much, George. My pleasure. We're taking a break right now. Coming right back in the Element Well Studios, which is today at the Mississippi Trade March. Stay with us. Super Talk Mississippi. Welcome back, everyone, to Middays. We are at the Mississippi Trademark for the Mississippi Construction Education Foundation Skills Competition. And we were just talking about uh, the postpartum Medicaid expansion legislation, legislation that would extend postpartum coverage from the present level of two months to 12 months, although there, there's an exception in that that has not been the case, as we indicated earlier, over the last three years since the first pandemic bill was enacted by um, the federal government, the Congress passed virtually unanimously. I think there was maybe one or two votes in the House against it, and then Donald Trump signed it into law, and that was just under a trillion dollars of COVID relief money. That's at least how the bill was styled, and that included an increase in the federal contribution to state Medicaid programs. It also required states to implement what is called in the bill a continuous enrollment provision, which essentially says that anyone enrolled in Medicaid, either at the point the bill was enacted, signed into law, or even after that, if they applied and began receiving Medicaid benefits, for the period of time in which the country was under the public uh, health emergency known as the PHE, as a result of COVID, which is ordered by the president, as long as that's in effect, states receive the increased funding from the federal government, but they also are not allowed to disenroll anyone. And that has caused the Medicaid rolls in the country to explode by some $20 million is the estimate. Um, because these are, some, these are considered to be $20 million current enrollees 
that are no longer eligible, but the states afford the benefits, but the states have not been able to disenroll them. That all changes at the end of this month when the public health emergency expires and states are then required by the federal government to disenroll anyone who is no longer eligible. At the same time, the federal government will start to phase out the increased federal match. That that is phased out over a six-month period. It assumes that it's going to take some time for the states to figure out who's on their rolls that are no longer eligible so they can notify them and they would no longer receive benefits. So that's kind of where we are. Uh, from the ceasefire text line on this matter, it's great to cover mother-child throughout the first year. That's That's what's about to, I think, be enacted into law. Um, once the and now that it is past the house and it will be transmitted to the governor's mansion, Governor Tate Reeves has indicated he would sign such legislation. This individual says it's great to cover mother child throughout first year, but there should be a limit in all caps to the number of overall children to that single mother to limit baby factories and individuals making a living off the government as a lifestyle. Well, I certainly agree that that uh, we have made it much easier um, to, I guess, exist with uh, with government benefits, so-called welfare, various programs, housing assistance, food stamps through the SNAP program, uh, health care either through Medicaid or through subsidized coverage in the. Um, Affordable Care Act exchanges, also known as the Obamacare marketplaces, just as an example of some of the benefits that are available. And then the big one that all really took hold during the pandemic was these enhanced uh, federal unemployment benefits. So unemployment uh, benefits are done at the state level, but the federal government stepped in during the public health emergency during the pandemic and increased that rather dramatically. Uh, both under Trump and extended further under President Biden. So you could sit at home, not work, and be paid not to do so through these uh, increased enhanced unemployment benefits. So that, And then you had the stimulus checks, the helicopter money that was dropped all over the nation. And then you had enhanced child tax credits, et cetera. So just all kinds of different different funding sources that, made it such that, yeah, depending on the state, one could uh, receive a fair amount of money from both the state and federal government combined without necessitating income through working. No doubt about it. So here's the issue to the the statement here on the ceasefire tax line that we should limit. First, post, uh, excuse me, coverage for women on Medicaid while they are pregnant is not limited to just single mothers. They could be married, but they still meet the income eligibility requirements, which, by the way, I did look it up. I said 150%, and then I said, well, it may be 200. I was wrong. It's 194, which is an odd number, right between 150 and 200. So 194% of the federal poverty level, um, which would put a couple... 
um, let's see, a, a couple to be eligible for Medicaid under those um, those threshold requirements. I think it put them, I'd have to look it up, at about 40-something thousand bucks of household income, and they would qualify for Medicaid. So it's not limited to just single mothers. And remember, if, if it's the first time they've ever been pregnant, they're not even a single mother. They're a single expecting mother. But I get the point. Uh, nonetheless, so um, that's how the that's how the eligibility criteria work. It's not just limited to what would be a single mother, including postpartum coverage. This is also how the system gets gamed, which needs to be checked out. In that, sometimes you'll have um, a, a expectant mother who comes up pregnant and they are not married, and they they know the father is. They plan to get married, but they delay marriage because if they combine their incomes they wouldn't qualify for medicaid coverage throughout the the um, period of pregnancy and then on through delivery um and so they avoid getting married so they'd qualify because again the two incomes put together would put them over the eligibility thresholds that's some gaming that occurs that is difficult to honestly to police but the other thing is to keep in mind is that we have a problem in this country and that we're not propagating enough. Elon Musk has warned that if we don't fix this problem where so much of our population that is in childbearing age is is not reproducing, is not propagating, is not producing um, new babies, (laughs) new residents of our country, new citizens, that we're going to run out of workers. Our population continues to age. We're rapidly headed to a point where we're going to have more people over the age of 65 in this country than under 18. So, and it's the folks under 18 that are, are the next generation or two of workers that that honestly are are paying into all the various systems to take care of of our aging population. So it gets it gets a bit complicated. So for a yeah for a family of of two. 294 percent of the federal poverty level comes in at just under forty thousand dollars. So I was I was pretty close on that, uh, and that would uh, that would qualify them for uh, the household income being at that level would qualify them for for Medicaid benefits under the coverage group of, of pregnant women. So that there's a dilemma there, and that we honestly need to be reproducing. Well, the problem. Unfortunately, is that a, a lot of our our population that is reproducing in Mississippi? Sixty percent have very low incomes, therefore they qualify for Medicaid. So there is some correlation between income and I guess interest in starting a family. Higher incomes seem to be less in higher income households that are of childbearing age seem to be less inclined to reproduce. Those that who can afford it, who don't need government assistance. We seem to to have a situation, a scenario in this country now where 40% of the babies in this country are born to households, think about it, that qualify for Medicaid, which means they have very low household income. And they're likely to end up in situations where, unfortunately, the children are going to need government benefits. And it's easy to say, well, okay, you've had a limit on children, but that's not going to stop people from getting pregnant and when they do our society's not going to tell them i'm sorry you're just going to have to drop that baby out in the street we're not going to do that and by the way if that child is sick i'm sorry they don't get any coverage 
They're just going to have to die. We're not going to do that. So I don't know what the solution is to that. I think education is key there, honestly. I don't. I think we could do a better job of educating on what the what the costs are, what the risks are, what the problems are associated with starting a family when you're really not in a position to do so. And I don't think we want to see this country end up with what we saw in China where China was being overrun with population and they were forcing abortion on their population. I believe I'm right on that, Rhino. We talked about that yesterday. Um, so it's, it's, a, it's, a difficult, it's a difficult situation, no doubt about it. And I think we need some smart people to get around the table and gather up and figure out what would work rather than just espousing all the things that won't. I, we've heard enough about that. Okay, well, what will work? What can we do to fix this problem? 65% of births in this, in this state on Medicaid. Coming right back, we're at the Mississippi Trademark. It's so awesome! Middays with Gerard Gibbert. Come on! Let's get on with the show! Yay. On Super Talk Mississippi. back with you at midday super talk mississippi at the mississippi construction education foundation skills competition that's being held at the beautiful mississippi trademarked uh, just a stone's throw uh, throw from downtown jackson and of course the mississippi state capitol with the legislators in session joining us now stephanie lee executive director of the mississippi state board of contractors stephanie good to see you again this is uh, a fantastic event it's um it, it does the heart good to see all these youngsters working on all those projects in there. That's exactly right, and good to see you again, too. Yeah, so tell us how the uh, the construction industry is involved in this competition and, and just with the foundation in general. Well, uh, the State Board of Contractors is the uh, contractor licensing agency for the state of Mississippi, and the construction industry is very forward-thinking. So 25-plus years ago, they realized that we would be looking and facing a workforce shortage. So the leaders in the construction industry petitioned the legislature to self-impose an additional fee onto the licensing fees that we collect when contractors apply for a license. We collect that fee, and then we reinvest it back into workforce development, construction education, and craft training uh, through programs such as the Mississippi Construction Education Foundation, as well as high schools, community colleges, and universities that have construction education and craft training programs in Mississippi. So you're putting your money where your mouth is, as they say, because you're you're investing in your future, essentially. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And uh, so what does it look like? What's the labor landscape look like in the industry right now? Been a bit of a slowdown in some, some construction areas just because of uh, the Fed's action in raising interest rates, making it a little bit more expensive uh, to borrow money for construction, certain construction projects. But what's that looking like overall these days? Uh, well, you know, Mississippi typically runs a little bit behind some yeah. of the other states when things start slowing down. So right. um, nationally speaking, housing starts are slowing down. Um, but with the infrastructure bill, we'll see some projects coming out of that, and that, that's a good thing. Um, of course, 
uh, have an adequate workforce is always an issue, and so that's another reason why the skills competition like this one is good to showcase the good workers that we have coming into the industry in Mississippi. Yeah. Well, because uh, I know that certainly the last couple of years, virtually every industry has, has, has faced really a tight labor market. Construction certainly no exception to that. Uh, you need people, people that want to work, and they, and they can do well in the construction industry. That's right. And uh, these students, the ones that are uh, here competing today and the, and the ones that are benefiting from those construction education funds that we're reinvesting in the schools and universities, um, are some of the best and brightest. The landscape's really changed as far as, uh, you know, you don't always have to go for the four-year degree anymore. Sure. Um, and, these, and the skills, trades um, can provide a very lucrative uh, career for these young people and uh, I'm always impressed uh, when I come down here and see them competing uh, at this showcase. No doubt. What what do you hear from your members, the uh, construction companies, what do you hear from them with respect to the quality of youngsters we have in the state of Mississippi that, that are their future workers? Well, uh, th- these these kids, like I said, they're some of the best and the brightest. They um, they're making really good grades. Uh, they're working in addition to going to school, um, and and they're striving to improve themselves and uh, build a career for themselves moving forward. And that's very impressive for today's uh, young people. Yeah, no doubt about it. Are there similar programs to this in in other states? Is this something that Mississippi modeled after other states, or did it have its genesis here in Mississippi? You know anything about that, or? I've talked with several other states, um, and so I have the privilege of getting to brag on Mississippi and, yeah. and the example that they've set. So uh, other states do have some programs that are similar, but uh, I'm proud to say I think Mississippi has the best program. And matter of fact, we're able to serve as an example to some of those other states. I talk uh, with my counterpart at other agencies uh, all across the nation, and uh, they're always very interested in learning how we do that, how we're investing that money back into construction education and workforce development and uh it's it's a privilege for me to be able to get to share that with them um and again use mississippi as a good example yeah we got the legislature in session as you know anything in particular that uh, your members your industry is is looking for out of our legislature this year that you're focused on talking to legislators about uh, there was a bill that was passed last year that added some additional licensure requirements for uh, residential contractors. Um, there's a, a bill pending now. Um, I believe it was on today's calendar, um, and that's going to conference. So we're keeping a watch on that. And then we have a couple of board members that will be confirmed this year. And, of course, always our appropriation bill. We okay. watch yeah. that. Yeah. So keeping an eye on a few things at least. Um, okay. Well, appreciate you coming on. Always good to see you, Stephanie. And uh, great work here. And, and again, I, I commend your industry for really getting involved at this level. That's pretty important. And uh, sort of guiding these kids on what is a potential career and a good career right here in the state of Mississippi. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. We appreciate the opportunity to be here today. You got it. Thanks for coming on. We're taking a break right here. We've got Super Talk News, Fox News coming up next because it is the top of the hour. And when we return, Wendy Clemens, Associate Superintendent for Secondary Education from the Mississippi Department of Education. We're in the Element Well Studios at the beautiful Mississippi Trademark.
Get ready, get ready to go beyond the headlines and join a meaningful conversation with people from around the state. You're listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert here on Super Talk Mississippi. Welcome back, everyone. Hour three of midday, Super Talk Mississippi live uh, from the Mississippi Trademark on this. Hump, hump day? <laughs> we sure are. We are enjoying the spring-like weather today. Of course, spring not too far off. We're down here for the Mississippi Construction Education Foundation Skills Competition. Joining us now, Wendy Clemens, Associate Superintendent of Secondary Education with the Mississippi Department of Education. Wendy, I've been talking about bragging on all those youngsters in there building all that stuff. Absolutely. It's pretty cool. Not only that, um, but I also want to brag on the number of non-traditional uh, students that we have in our competition. Um, we have increased the number of non-traditional students that are in our different programs. And I went through this morning at 8 o'clock when they sounded the bell and everybody started working. And I did not find one competition that there was not a female student involved in that competition. How about that? And so that represents our, our non-traditional careers for students. Well, that's awesome. So yeah. w- what exactly is your function at the Department of Education with secondary education? I work primarily um, with both academic and career and technical education. And part of the reason that I work with both of those is because <clears throat> it's important that the two be commingled and that it's not one or the other. Um, we um, in CTE, we actually uh, brag about our graduation rate um, in twenty. 20- 20, excuse me, 21, 22, we had a graduation rate of 99% in career and technical education. And we believe that number is uh, what it is because of the hands-on application of what the students are learning, which is represented here at Skills. Um, and so we want to find opportunities to blend the academic with the career and technical education. Not that 15, 16, 17-year-olds have to know what they want to be when they grow up, but at least they get to experiment with what they want to be when they grow up. And these programs, if you haven't noticed, if the child decides they don't want to do that, they do leave high school with what we call transferable skills sure. that they can apply to what it is that they, they do want to be when they grow up. Yeah, so. and Well, it's important just to have the exposure. I, I think what's so uh, different uh, from the days when, when I was going to school is, is that there were more limited choices mm-hmm. in, in occupations. Yes. Now it's a giant, broad, diverse, wide, deep universe. Absolutely. You don't know what you don't know. Right. And the more you can get exposed to and something kind of tickles your fancy and says, yeah, that fits. That feels good. This mm-hmm. is rewarding. This is this mm-hmm. is enjoyable work, and, and I can make a living doing it. That's that, correct. Yeah. And that's what we want. Yeah. We, we really start working with students as early as sixth and seventh grade. Some districts obviously start kindergarten, first grade. Yeah. Um, trying to expose students uh, to careers that they wouldn't normally be exposed to. And then in the middle school, we began to assess their aptitude for that field, their interest in that field. And then we look to support programs that are high-wage, high-demand um, 
programs so that our students, when they leave us, whatever their post-secondary experience is, they have something to, to lean into. Yeah. So. so how does this, when you think about secondary education, the traditional classroom education, which, of course, is important, that subject matter we, we all need uh, to function in society, but how, how does that... How does that synergize with this sort of education? It, we um, are, we being the Department of Education, is supporting an effort in our state uh, called Career Academies. Uh, we have about 30 districts that are implementing Career Academies in some shape, form, or fashion. And what that allows us to do is take students in a particular career field, be it health science or construction, carpentry, whatever, um, and cohort those students so that they're going into their English classes together, they're going into their math and science classes together, and that teacher actually tries to pattern everything in English, math, science to what they're doing okay. in their career sure. cluster. You that, know? Make, that makes sense. And it just makes everything more applicable to the student. Yeah. Uh, you and I know that years ago, well, for me, years ago when I was in the classroom and I was reading Beowulf, you know, <laughs> I was thinking, well, this is cool, but what am I going to do? You know, and so just trying to find that literature to get students really um, seeing the applicability of what they're reading and how that's going to help them after they leave high school. Yeah. Well, I think a lot of us at that age think, I'll never use this. And then, sure enough, they end up using it, of course. Uh, you exactly. Know, you don't know. But, you know, it's, it's, I often think it's, it's more about learning how to learn as much as it is the specific content. Absolutely. It is. Um, we... Um, focus a lot on um, in our curricula. We focus particularly in CTE, we focus a lot on what they call metacognition and that is self-monitoring your learning and understanding what you're learning and how you learn. Right. Um, because as adults, we're always learning. Sure. I mean, you know? Never ends. And if we know how we learn best, then we are going to be lifelong learners. Yeah. So a lot of what we incorporate into the state curricula is about metacognition, knowing okay. how how to learn. Yeah, well, I'm glad to hear that because um, not sure you're aware. I worked in the IT industry my my professional career, and of course, we we would uh, often we find ourselves in situations where uh you know now you're starting your education you're, you're not ending it because you've graduated and you've got these degrees and credentials and so forth that's really just a license to go learn more is what it is uh, and we're we were constantly of course uh being faced with whole new technologies that we'd have to go master and become proficient in so Absolutely. It's, it's important to learn how to learn how to read, how to interpret, right. um, how to apply. Yeah. And, and that's applicable across a broad spectrum of, of occupations sure. and disciplines. And so it's just important to learn how to learn, how to consume, how to comprehend, uh, and how to practically apply those skills in right. the workforce. Absolutely. And those types of things really don't change. However, we analyze and look at our curriculum every three years yeah. because like you said in the it world if it's three years old it's kind of archaic you know yeah. you're yeah. looking forward so we may have to change our curriculum based on what the industry requires of our sure. students but that basic um 
love of learning, that application, how to learn, that never changes. It's universal, it's, too. It's universal. It's absolutely universal. Yep. And uh, I, I just remember back in my days where you felt like, well, okay, I'm done with the books now. <laughs> I've learned it. Not Now I go work and pretty much just rep- repetitive. And it's just not anymore every single day. And it doesn't matter the industry. Construction is no exception to absolutely. that. Absolutely. You're correct. You're absolutely correct. Uh, watching the, the folks in there dealing with the HVAC systems, I, I'm in the process of installing new home automation mm-hmm. solution in my home and uh, just just how fascinating, how complex, how sophisticated that technology is in the home. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and you consider everything now that is digitally connected, but all that also uh, has to interface and, and uh, be included in the construction design that's right. and the actual construction project itself. So yeah. that's just changed that whole world yeah. considerably. Yeah, it's amazing um, how technology is so um, incorporated into all of our career technical education fields. I mean, all of them. You yeah. know? Uh, we're working right now on a curriculum for unmanned aerial systems. You right. know, because again, that's that's a world. That's sure. the world we're living in. You no know? doubt about it. And it impacts so many fields, um, and allows them to work more efficiently. And so we, it, it's a demand. So we try to meet that demand. So, to what extent, uh, Wendy? Does the Department of Education, perhaps in, in, in your role in your office, to what extent are you interacting with the private sector to understand more? What are they looking for? What skills are, are they perhaps seeing uh, a deficiency in the, the, of, of graduates? That they, they come to you and say, we'd really need to like to ramp that up somewhat. We do that in various ways. Uh, the first of which is when we are writing curricula and revisit that every three years, yeah. Business and industry is highly involved okay. in the writing of that curriculum. Um, and so that's first and foremost. So they're telling us as we write, this is what we need. This is this needs to be different than what it was, you know. So that's first and foremost. Uh, we also work through nonprofit organizations like MCEF to get business and industry more involved. Um, we have advisory boards where we get business and industry involved. We are constantly talking with business business and industry to determine what it is that they need. We also communicate with post-secondary institutions as well to make sure that our secondary programs bridge into what we have in our post-secondary arena in case students need to continue on in order to get a particular certification. It's good to hear because you know that uh, children, it's estimated that children born today will occupy jobs that have yet to be invented. That's correct. Uh, so we we got to c- continue to adjust and, and uh, evolve our education systems to accommodate the jobs of the future. Absolutely. Appreciate you coming on, Wendy. Good Thank job you. and uh, great work here. And I'm so proud of these students. They look good, don't that, they? Doesn't it look wonderful? It's, it's awesome. It's awesome. I agree. Coming right back, uh, we've got Representative Jill Ford at uh, 1237. Stay with us, please. We're at uh, the Mississippi Trademark. Talk that keeps Mississippi talking. Middays with Gerard Gibbert. Let's get on with it. On Super Talk Mississippi.
back in the Element Wealth Studios down at the Mississippi Trademark today for the Mississippi Construction Education Foundation Skills Competition. We've got Representative Jill Ford coming on the program next, and then we'll wrap up the day with Kel Smith, the Executive uh, Director, I believe is the position, right? The Executive Director of the Mississippi Community College uh, Board. Looking forward to those conversations. So um, this whole issue of, of Medicaid, Medicaid expansion, postpartum extension, et cetera, and, and I, I'll just convey where I stand. I do not think Medicaid expansion by any stretch of the imagination is a silver bullet solution to the financial difficulties being experienced by not only hospitals in Mississippi but hospitals across the country. I don't think that's the case at all. What I do think is the problem um, is that there is a a disproportionate amount of under-reimbursed services in health care and uh, totally unreimbursed, under-reimbursed and unreimbursed services uh, or problems in, in health care. And... Uh, I, I'm certainly not suggesting that expanding Medicaid in Mississippi is a way to totally resolve that problem. I do not think it is whatsoever. Uh, would it be better than getting nothing? Well, that depends. Um, there are some who say, well, if we expanded Medicaid, to, which, by the way, simply means that we would add the coverage group of of low-income, able-bodied, working adults. I think that comes as a shock to a lot of people when they find out that, yeah, just a low-income person who's working and is able-bodied, meaning they're not disabled, they're not blind, they're not obviously a pregnant female, and uh, they're, they're not elderly and, and uh, with a low income. Those are the traditional coverage group since the program was launched in 1965 expansion would cover able-bodied working adults why do they have to work because you have to have an income of at least 100 percent of the federal poverty level to qualify got to have at least that that particular group of individuals does not have a route to get health care insurance in in mississippi it's 12 percent of our population that's significant but they still get sick, and many still seek health care. And they get that health care for free is what happens right now, meaning they don't pay for it. So then how does it? How do the hospitals function with that amount of, and, and other providers, how do they function when they got so much of their services essentially being given away? Well, they attempt at least to make ends meet um, uh, by serving those with private coverage that does reimburse at least above cost. So the hospitals that that do okay economically are those that have a a large amount of their patient census and services being provided and reimbursed by private insurers. They, They do okay. That's why so many of the specialty clinics and so forth you see around the landscape that do not accept Medicaid and are not going to provide their services to someone, generally speaking, who does not pay, they do okay. They absolutely do okay. But a hospital which is operating an emergency room that is compelled by federal law 
to at least stabilize the patient under, under the EMTALA law, something that went into effect in 1986. It was um, it was proposed uh, by and, and championed by President Ronald Reagan. And that requires a hospital to stabilize any patient that shows up in the ER, whether they can pay for it or not. And uh, that, that, that causes often a financial problem because they end up consuming a fair amount of services in many particular uh, cases that, for which the hospital is not reimbursed. So th- these are complex problems. What I would like to see happen is that people who have a stake in this, have knowledge of this, who, um, uh, who represent all the, the various factions that are involved in delivery and consumption of health care, work together to devise some sort of solution. Uh, if, if Medicaid's not it, and I'm simply not, surely not saying that it's, it is, and I, and I don't believe that it is an exclusive, exclusive solution, talking about Medicaid expansion. Okay, well then what? I, I just think we've got to have more than just, no, that won't work. No, that just is, is is worse. That no, that would just make a, a bad situation even worse. I'm not, I'm not arguing that with that. But okay, what then? Because we're not going to let them die in the street. We're not going to let mothers have babies in their cars. We're not going to tell sick children, "I'm sorry, you just have to be sick." We're not going to do that. If, if we are, somebody let me know. Who out there is would would be willing to just let a child, for example, who happens to be trapped in a household? They can't afford health care insurance, and they get sick, and they need care. Who's going to say, I'm sorry, you just have to be sick? I don't think we're going to do that. Even the most so-called conservative amongst us. Now, I don't like the fact that they end up relying on government for that. I don't like that at all, honestly. Um, but, again, I'm looking for... A solution, and Thomas says, then nothing. Otherwise, we need to abandon capitalism and embrace socialism without all these little steps. It's not what this is, Thomas. You're, you're totally misreading this, man. Totally misreading it. I ask you, what is your solution? Best I can tell, you would allow the child to suffer, perhaps even die. You would, you would insist that a that a pregnant mother just has to have that baby out in the street, in the back of the car. I don't know what the what the solution is. That's why I'm calling on um, a convening of of all the stakeholders, some smart people that can think through this and figure it out. It's a function of money, and the fact is, healthcare costs more money than most people have. Just does, and so the choice is either you do without it, in which case you just remain sick and perhaps ultimately die. We figure out a way to pay for it. I've heard the suggestion, well, the churches just ought to cover that. They're the charitable organizations. Well, think about that. You're going to dump a $6 billion tab on the churches in Mississippi? Because that's what it is. And Mississippi is, in effect, reliant totally on the deep blue Democrat states because they're the ones who pay more into the federal government than they receive out. And then Mississippi is the exact opposite. We take in $3 of federal money for every dollar we spend. We're totally, our existence is completely reliant on tax money from other states, the blue states, those who 
generally think differently about the philosophy of government than we do. Thomas says, no, I take care of someone out of the goodness of my heart if I choose to. I wouldn't advocate you being fleeced to pay for it. Nobody's advocating for that either. You're, you're paying for it, as I told you, Thomas, by participating in private insurance, whether it's on your car, your home, um, or health insurance. And, and if it's a premature baby that costs $2 million to nurse to, to health, you're going to pay $2 million? And if you say no other people would have to step in and help, okay, $6 billion. In the state of Mississippi, six billion. Figure that out. Who, who's going to hit the hip and contribute to that pot? Well, I tell you, who does it now? New York, California, New Jersey, the rich states. That's where it comes from. Of course, the way our government's operating now, that don't cover it either. They just go borrow and plunge us into debt. Speaking of which, as expected, uh, Rhino, this subject of Medicare and Social Security, both programs which are facing serious financial trouble, that is being escalated to the top of the pro- uh, the issues list as a priority in the 2024 election. And yesterday we talked extensively about Joe Biden's plans and proposal to increase uh, the net investment income tax on high-income earners to fund the shortfall in Medicare. And this is the other thing he wants to do, folks. He wants to, he wants to dedicate the revenue from the net investment income tax, which presently just goes into the general fund. He wants to dedicate that to the Medicare trust fund. doesn't produce any more money overall. It just moves it around. It's a shell game. Shifts it out of this pot into that pot to make Medicare look more solvent. doesn't mean we... We aren't still producing the same deficit, aren't having to borrow the same amount of money at the federal level to make ends meet. It just means we move it out of this bucket into that bucket and then take a victory lap. That's the kind of crap these people throw at us. And they, unfortunately, too many Americans just accept that as as gospel and run with it and think that some problem has been solved. They haven't solved any problem. They just renamed it. It's ridiculous. We're coming right back with Representative Jill Ford. Stay with us. Everybody ready? I'm ready. Ready here. Middays with Gerard Gibbert on Super Talk Mississippi. I remember finding Welcome back, everyone, to Middays. We are live from the Mississippi Trademark for the Mississippi Construction Education Foundation Skills Competition. Joining us now in the Element Well Studios in the Trademark is Representative Jill Ford. Uh, she serves at District 73, which includes my district. She would be my representative there in Ridgeland. Good to have you on there, Representative Ford. Thank you, so, Gerard. All right, so... Explain to me what you were just speaking uh, to the group here, and it's my understanding that uh, you proposed something that has been implemented, which is recognizing uh, these students for not only their achievements, but for advancing on to the next level, right, from from secondary school, from high school. That's right. Yeah, and so we're, we're giving them essentially the equivalent treatment of someone who signs an athletic scholarship, and well, we should. We should. Yes, we should. Tell um, us about that. 
want to just thank, first of all, um, Lee Nations and Brent Bean. Mississippi, Mississippi Construction Education Foundation met with me months ago, and I had this idea. It actually was an idea that I stole from the governor of Iowa. She did it last year for the first time and had, I think, about 15 young men sign. Today we had 25 young men sign. And... Um, my story is a little unique. I, um, you know, I tell people, yes, my name is Jill Ford. I represent Madison County in the Mississippi House of Representatives. But first and foremost, I am the mother of two plumbers and very educated plumbers. As you know, Gerard, my Done oldest son. Done some work son, in my house. That's right. My oldest son was going to go to law school. He had finished Ole Miss, was going to go to law school and just decided, uh, just listen really to the Lord's calling and decided to go into plumbing and is doing great now in this uh, trade and I want to make it my mission to normalize the idea of sending our kids to trade school without making them feel like it's an inferior career choice. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, like I said, I've had experience uh, with your sons and I see their trucks all over Madison County as well. uh, and, and I know it, it, at first you weren't sure what to make of that when they told you that was uh, what their career choice would be. No, and I really I think my role as not only representative but the mother of two plumbers is to make sure I talk to the parents and explain to them that they need to lay their pride aside and take up the idea, open their heart and mind, and take up the idea of trades over a four-year college degree because oftentimes we don't realize if you if you learn a trade, you have the opportunity and ability to own your own company instead of work for someone else for the rest of their life. And so, yeah. what I didn't know all this. I had to learn this, and it it has until I saw the success and the happiness and stability of both my sons that I realized that I had this unique opportunity uh, to be that voice to the parents and to the mamas especially. Yeah. So, is this the first year that we? First year. Okay. So, first year. Um, it, it's something you, you said. You you talked to Brent about yeah, you. You made this proposal, and it and it's become a reality. Uh, I, we were here on the air. What was the reaction from the students as they were being recognized? I, there, I'm. I was actually pretty much talking to the parents, just yeah. telling them how proud I was of their students and telling them that they were the smartest men in the room. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, because their uh, career choice is going to probably outpace their own parents at the rate that uh, Mississippi has over 50,000 jobs that are available right now. But um, my husband and I did a great job of overselling a four-year college degree and a really bad <laughs> job of underselling a career technical degree. Yeah. And so I want to just encourage all the parents today. And again, I feel like that is my role in this whole thing is just to, if I, if someone would have told me, just lay your pride aside and give it a couple of years and see what your sons are going to be able to do. If they're willing to work hard and get their fingernails dirty, yeah. they will be able to own their own Well, and it appears to me whenever I run into your fine sons and see them out and about that they're quite happy with their career choices and they got all the work they can handle. Got a lot of work, and I'm thankful and proud of that. And I want to just uh, thank all my friends and constituents for using them. Um, but, Gerard, 
what I've learned since I have been placed in this role as the mama of two plumbers is that 71% of our high school seniors graduate high school and go to college, yet only 31% of them actually graduate college within six years. So total, there's about 69% of these kids that are floundering for their future when when you add those together. I am so concerned that those 69% think that they don't really have a place to fit in. And I want them to realize that just a two-year degree, going to a technical school or a two-year degree, will which is basic hands-on learning, they, they can have a career that's going to give them an advantage and experience to earn while you learn. And um, they can steer clear of unnecessary college debt. Yeah. Well, which is important. It, it's uh, it, first, it's not for everybody, and, and secondly, society needs uh, those those skills. Those right, services. and that's what Patton did. He um, saw what his community. What did my community need? And you know, a lot of plumbers were aging out, and so that we go. needed a younger generation. And honestly, he could actually probably put young men in more counties around ours if um, if. He had, if he could take care of all of our county right now. So yeah. he's got as much work as he needs right now. And I praise the Lord for that. I'm not being bragging at all. So That's awesome. All right, so give us a bit of an update uh, from all the activities down there under the dome. I think uh, probably a couple of high-profile issues that have cropped up is, of course, the postpartum uh, Medicaid extension is one that, as you know, the governor uh, announced a couple of weeks ago that he would support such a measure. Uh, it passed the Senate, got transmitted over to the House. Uh, the Speaker, um, I think, was a little hesitant, but it, it ultimately that uh, passed through committee, got to the floor, passed the floor, and now it's headed to the to governor's desk. I think you voted uh, against the measure. I did. Uh, tell us about that. What, what are your thoughts? I did. It was a hard vote. Um, as a woman, it was a very hard vote for me. I had many constituents not for it. You know, I represent Madison County. Um, I had a couple for it, but I voted no because I preferred a six-month extension rather than a 12-month extension, and you know as well as I do that that was not an option. And I'm glad our mothers are going to get some help, and hopefully we can absorb the additional cost. But um, it was not an easy vote. But, you know, George, sometimes you have to vote. You have to know your constituency and you have to do what your constituency um is you know asking you to do okay so you you got some feedback from your constituents okay and you were guided by them and and you voted uh where you felt was uh consistent with what they they wanted yes yeah well that Honestly, that's the way it ought to work. You know, I always go back to the flag vote. Um, I grew up just a couple of, maybe 15 miles from Shiloh National Park, and that was my um, field trip every year. And if I would have been, um, if, you know, in my heart, I, I did not necessarily want to vote against it, but I knew my constituency 20 years ago had voted um, percentage was higher and greater, and they wanted me to vote for the new flag, and so I tried my hardest to represent my constituency. Gotcha. All right, so the other thing that uh, it looks like is headed your way is this uh, whole rework of MAEP funding. As you know, that uh, made its way through the Senate. That that. Is fairly complicated. I don't know why we have to make that so complicated. Uh, the formula itself is 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 a bit to absorb, 
uh, it, what's the talk around the house at this point? Honestly, I think it's dead. If I'm not mistaken, okay. I don't think we're going to take it up. Um, okay. But Is that, we still have this afternoon. We have to go back this afternoon. That's what and I thought, we have yeah. a couple bills that we're going to vote on this afternoon. I think the initiative process is one of them. And oh, the initiative process. Mm-hmm. Okay. I think I'm right on that. Okay. Well, yeah, that would be the other high-profile Deadline um, day is today. Measure. So yeah, if we it don't is bring today. it up you're today, right. it's not getting up. So. You're right. So your, your thoughts on that with the higher signature threshold? Um, I like the higher st- signature threshold, but um, my thoughts are truly... My and for me, an initiative process is you get the initiative every four years to vote the person to um, represent your constituency and your base. And I don't want us to become California. They had 19 initiatives on their last election and uh, pages and pages of um, definition of what that was. I just don't want us to allow. Um, others to own our state and so i'm i'm hesitant of the initiative process so um i haven't seen what's coming before us so i'm not going to tell you if i'm voting yes or no i always try to do my best to make sure before i say how i'm going to vote but right now i'm leaning towards a no and in four years my constituents can vote me out and put someone else in if they don't like how i represent them okay well well, appreciate you you coming on and talking about that and addressing those key issues and and being uh and and being candid about it appreciate that well honesty is about all i got appreciate it thanks for uh, Always good to see you. Appreciate you coming on. Thanks for representing uh, my county. Thank you. In the state legislature, in the state house. All right, we'll take a break right here on Middays. Final segment is next, and uh, we'll have Kel Smith, the executive director of the Mississippi Community College Board. We're at the Mississippi Trademark for the Mississippi Construction Education Foundation Skills Competition. Coming right back. Middays with Gerard Gibbert. Come on, let's get on with the show. On Super Talk Mississippi. Rhino digging up a little blue oyster cult. Of course, when you hear that tune, you can't help but think about the infamous uh, Saturday Night Live, a spoof on that with uh, Will Ferrell and Christopher Walken. I need more uh, so, cowbell. <laughs> I need more cowbell. So so excellent. Joining us now in the Element Well Studios from the Mississippi Trademark is Kel Smith, the Executive Director of the Mississippi Community College Board. Good to see you again, Kel. It's a great day today with all these youngsters uh, competing in the construction uh, skills competition. And gosh, what about this uh, this brand new program that Representative Ford 
uh, spearheaded that is recognizing these students for something other than athletics, but kind of done in that same vein to, to appreciate and recognize that they're going on to further their education here. Yeah, what what an absolute great effort this morning by Representative Ford. Uh, you know, we're so used here, used to here in the South to celebrate, like you said, the student athletes that are going to sign Division One football scholarships. Well, today was an awesome opportunity to celebrate those who have chosen to take a career path that will lead them to uh, a, a great job, a great career, good family-sustaining wages that we hear all about. And yeah. so just hopefully we can build on it uh, in the years to come. I think we had probably 15 to 20 folks today sign their letters of intent to continue their Isn't that awesome? education. Wonderful, wonderful. That's so cool. I, I'm, I'm so impressed with that, and I, and I told Representative Ford that, and who happens to be my rep as well. I, I, it never occurred to me, but what a great idea. Yeah. Uh, where have we been all these years not, not doing something like that? That's exactly right. If we can somehow figure out that silver bullet to package the career and technical options that are available here in 2023 it's not the old welding and botech that, right. that the, the stereotype from the 50s 60s and 70s i mean these are high skill high demand jobs just walking through the trademark and seeing uh the students putting together uh buildings and hvac you know machines is incredibly impressive to me and and something i uh, would like to pass on to you and, and our audience as well is the number of texts I get here on our ceasefire text line from individuals in Mississippi that uh, discuss their livelihoods in in these these various occupations, these various uh, trade jobs, and they'll they're kind enough to share the sort of income they're able to produce on that as well. And and I, it should be eye opening to to any student, anyone that's at that level trying to figure out, gee, what I want, what's my passion? What do I want to be and do in life? Um, these are not jobs that are on the low end of the income scale by any stretch. You're exactly right. We used to say that these type jobs were the two car one boat job. You know that they can they can put you in a position to earn a high wage for the as long as you want to. Absolutely. Absolutely. As quickly as you want to as well. And it doesn't appear to be any shortage of demand for their skills and services, even in, in uh, rather lean economic times. You know, what a lot of folks maybe do is convert from maybe going from, say, new construction when, when that's down a bit. They start doing things in their existing properties, and there's demand for those skills to do that. That's exactly right. You know, at the time of year we're in in Mississippi, summer's about to kick the door down, and good luck in a few months finding an age. HVAC technician that can come and, and repair your uh, air conditioner in a, in a timely manner. And I don't know if anyone's had the experiences I have. And you know, my home was at the point where I had to do some replacement of, of HVAC. It's just just normal uh, maturation of, of the of the gear. They're fairly complex uh, systems these days, which is cool. I mean, they're all digital, and and you, it's just amazing that you got these HVAC guys install, installing wireless access points. Yeah. You know, around the units up in my attic, and it's it's pretty neat. It's unbelievable. Yeah, you know, and, and today's event and yesterday's event as well, such a great collaborative effort between business and industry, all, all the vendors inside that, that have donated their time, their equipment, uh, the, the post-secondary institutions, the secondary institutions. This is a great example. Y'all coming out to spotlight all the work, you know, of all of us coming together to, to try to put an emphasis on these jobs that lead to these careers. And I know you guys do a great job of this uh, in the community colleges, and we're going to be at the community university, I think, later on uh, this month month, and I, I said it last time when I was there, we, we ought to have that across yep. the whole dang state. I yep. mean, that's the model, honestly. But you work quite a bit, uh, do the community colleges, with the private sector and try, trying to really use them to guide your curriculum. We do. We have a division in our office that, that focuses
focus is entirely on curriculum. And so what that means is we'll come in and we'll rewrite or, or create a new curriculum, but we don't do that in a silo. We bring in business and industry because the one thing we want to make sure is that when a student graduates with a career technical degree, that they can enter the job force on day one and not yeah. have to have remediation. And so by us working with business and industry, that hopefully ensures that, that you know what is being taught at the community college is what's needed at the, at the job site. I just feel like, Kellen, I'm quite sure you're totally on board with this view as well, is any time we can get education, private sector, public sector together, all pulling the, the cart in the same direction, good things happen. You're exactly right about that, Gerard. Appreciate you coming on. Great work here. Uh, uh, great organization, the uh, Construction Education Foundation, and so proud of all these youngsters. Thanks. Thank you. Appreciate it, Kel. Yep. We are out of time here today on Middays. We've enjoyed being here at the Mississippi Trademark. What a beautiful facility. We're back in the Element Well Studios again tomorrow at Super Talk headquarters. Until then, stay safe and God bless everyone. Mississippi Media Production.